This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Jennifer Lind, and I'll be your host for this episode. I would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which I have the privilege of recording this episode is the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. The Algonquin peoples have lived on this land since time immemorial, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be present in their territory. As law students, we are often taught to apply the law as it is written. Rarely do we have the opportunity, let alone the time, to critically think about the policy objectives behind legislation, how laws are implemented in society, and how they affect the everyday lives of Canadians. As a result, it can be easy to get caught up in black-letter law, perhaps losing sight of how legislation often has unintended and disproportionate impacts on certain communities, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in particular. It's our responsibility as law students to take the time to pause and reflect on the systemic inequities that exist in the Canadian legal system, as well as our own role as future lawyers. Perhaps most importantly, we should be asking ourselves how we can become better advocates and better policymakers in the future so that we can address these inequities. This is why I feel so lucky to be here today with Senator Yvonne Boyer, our guest for this episode. A member of the Métis Nation of Ontario with ancestral roots in the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan and the Red River, Senator Boyer is a fierce advocate for Indigenous rights in the Senate. Appointed to the Senate in 2018, She has a background in nursing and has over 20 years of experience practicing law and publishing extensively on the topics of Indigenous health and how Aboriginal rights and treaty law intersects on the health of Indigenous people. Senator Boyer is a member of the Law Society of Ontario as well as a member of the Law Society of Saskatchewan. She received her law degree from the University of Saskatchewan and her Master of Laws and Doctor of Laws from the University of Ottawa. She also completed a postdoctoral fellowship with the Indigenous Peoples Health Research Centre at the University of Regina and is a former Canada Research Chair in Aboriginal Health and Wellness at Brandon University. Simultaneously to running her own law practice, Senator Boyer was the Associate Director for the Centre for Health Law, Policy and Ethics and a part-time professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. She worked previously as counsel to the Native Women's Association of Canada, legal advisor to the Canadian Nurses Protective Society, and an executive with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and the National Aboriginal Health Organization. Senator Boyer has also served on a number of different boards, including the Champlain Local Integrated Health Network and Save the Children Canada. She's a former Canadian Human Rights Commissioner and an appointed member of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations First Nations Appeal Tribunal. Senator Boyer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm uh, an honor. I'm honored to be here today and to be able to speak to the law students. And I um, I can't wait to share a few of the things that I've learned. So thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> of course, I know the law students will be super excited to hear from you. Um, I'm going to start with the first question here. So you have had an impressive career as a nurse, a lawyer, and a professor, not to mention a bunch of other roles as well. Do you think you'd share some highlights from your career thus far and perhaps what it is about your work that led you to the Senate? Yeah, so it it kind of goes back to a calling. It's more like a calling than any kind of planned out career or job um, movement uh, 
forward. It seemed to be something that I was born into, and I'll I'll give you a little glimpse of that. It has to do with me being a little girl and listening to bedtime stories about my from my Aunt Lucy. And I lived with my Aunt Lucy and Uncle Pat off and on when I was little. And I have fond memories of the stories that she told me about her years in a tuberculosis sanatorium. And she spent 10 years there at Fort Sand in Fort Quapel, Saskatchewan. And uh, she talked about how difficult it was. Five of those years were in a body cast and the other five was flat on her back because those were the days that there was no such thing as antibiotics. So they believed that rest and good food and fresh air would cure tuberculosis. And indeed, in many, in her case, it eventually did, but it took a very long time. But the stories that she told me as a little girl were about a lot uh, of sadness. And sometimes she talked about monsters that walk the halls in the form of humans and racism and what happened to children. Sometimes it did not have parents looking after them are very close because in those days it was a long way to travel and indeed she saw her family once in 10 years so so that's sort of the roots of where this all began and her her voice resonated in my ears and it has through all of the years that I was nursing and through the years that I was beginning my law career and the reason my law career ever began was because of what I heard in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in the hospitals, I would hear things like, those Indian women need to be sterilized to solve the problem. And I have to tell you that I heard that on more than one occasion. And, and so those were the kind of things that were making me angry. And I saw how indigenous people were being treated and there was racism in the healthcare system back then in the 70s and the 80s. And I had, hadn't had seen much change from what my aunt had described to me that was going on when she was in Fort Sand from 1928 to 1938. So there really hadn't been a lot of leaps and bounds as far as treating Indigenous people any differently. So it really ignited a fire in me to want to do something about it. And I figured if I got a law degree, people would have to start listening to me. And that is what inspired me to ever go in the direction of the law. And it was, um, it was almost as if I was, I was driven. I was absolutely driven to get something done because when I started law school, I was pregnant with my fourth child and, and it was not an easy task and that's a whole other story. I'll save you the details. But and I would to any law students listening, don't do it the way I did it. <laughs> it was very, it was very difficult, but I managed to make it through my first law degree with support of relying on my elders and friends. And um, when I finished that law degree, what it gave me at that time was the back of the years that I had been nursing and I had worked in the operating room. And, and I'd worked on the floors of small 50 bed hospitals and I'd worked in mostly community hospitals, very few large hospitals, but I had this background knowledge of health, what health is about, 
racism and how indigenous people are being treated. And then I had the law, I had tools. So after my first degree, I decided I needed to really start putting those two together and seeing if I could put something um, out that would start having people listen to some of the topics that were important that I had thought about when I was in law school, like mm. the constitutional status of Aboriginal and treaty rights to health and what are the fiduciary obligations of the government towards Indigenous health and what about women? Women are being treated differently. They have a whole different set of of uh, circumstances that they're trying to deal with. So so those were the those were is what led me into the law and then progressively it it went from I, I need to, it I need to develop those ideas in my master's degree and then even further in a uh, in a doctorate of law which I did mm. and then as a Canada research chair I even took it further. So the being able to go into the Senate was like uh, it was a step that I'm, I am so grateful for because mm -hmm. I can take what I've learned through those years that the community has taught me and the resonation from my aunt's voice is still in my ear. And what I do on an everyday basis is, is driven by the people that have influenced me and my, my ancestors and the community. So it's not just a career. It's not just a job. I think of it more as a calling really mm -hmm. is what um, is, is where I'm at right now. And I feel really fortunate that I am able to, to um, have access to the brilliant, brilliant interns that come to me from Ottawa U and common law and civil law that come over and do work in the Senate because we need to make those, it's important to make those connections <clears throat> because all of you are, are going are contributing to what we do at the Senate and as lawyers have a great responsibility to advocate and to make your voices heard. So is that a good answer, Jennifer? That's is a, that number that's one? That's a great <laughs> answer. No, absolutely. And I mean it's so interesting to hear you talk about career in more more in the sense of something that drives you. And I think that's incredibly important because there's so many law students that are seeking something beyond themselves and instead of looking at a career as kind of a set of steps looking at it as more as what you were kind of put here to do and I think it's incredible that you've had so much experience practical experience in the health sector that you can then bring into the work that you do in the senate um yeah I can imagine that that has been super helpful and of course motivating um to push you through some of the more difficult work that you do um Definitely. Yeah. And there's there's one more thing I want to mention that yeah. uh, maybe uh, you know some of the students can relate to, and and maybe not yet, but maybe will at some time during their academics, is that when I when I, I was accepted into the program of legal studies for Native people in 1991 at the University of Saskatchewan, and without that program, I would have never made it into law school. I did not have the academics behind yeah. me. I could not compete. I barely made it through the LSAT. But the program recognized that I had, um, I had, um, I had a, a nursing diploma, but I did not have the that degree that I would be able to compete with other students in getting into a law school. So when I was accepted into the program, they took my life experience 
as allowing me to come into the program. And then once you got into that program, you were tested. You, it was tough, mm. tough, 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 tough. And if you made it through that program, you had a good chance of making it through law school. So I, I made it through the program. But the most important thing that happened to me there is that when I met people that were like-minded, that had the same drive, I went into that program and I was pregnant with my fourth child. And, mm-hmm. um, and, but I wasn't an anomaly. I mean, I, many of, the, of my friends that I met there had extended families to take care of, had their grandparents, had their, their, their idea of kinship was, was a very much part of the family. So it was different. And it was mm-hmm. like we became a legal family for support. And it was like the light bulbs came on for me as like, oh, I found my family that thinks like I do, mm-hmm. that feels like I do, that has that drive to make it better. And so it was so important for me to to do that. And I'm hoping that all of the students that are listening here can find at least that one person out there in their own community at law school that is, and, and you don't need to have a whole bunch, but you you know, mm-hmm. it's good to have one or two and make a community because many of you are away from home. And I do believe this is really important to help uh, help sustain you and keep you upright while you make it through that first degree. And, yeah, uh, and, and maybe if that's as far as you want to go too. I mean, I'm not saying that you yeah. should go further, <laughs> but for me, I, I say first degree because when I graduated from from when I finally made it through my first degree. Um, and here's kind of an interesting story that maybe some of you can relate to as well, mm-hmm. is that I, in all of my studies, I never failed one, but I probably didn't get much over 60 in any of my classes because I had so many other things that were on the go that I was so grateful to make it over that 50 mark and mm-hmm. and actually get out of law school with a degree. So I, when it was convocation day, I had my, I was gowned and I saw the Dean over there and we're on the stage behind the, behind the curtain. And I saw the Dean and I didn't want to catch his eye. And uh, because I thought, Oh my goodness, he's going to look at me and he's going to catch my eye and he's going to come over and say, Oh, Yvonne, Yvonne. Oh, you got one more class to do. That was a mistake. (laughs) So when I actually, uh, when it was time for them to call my name, I almost like ran onto that stage, grabbed that <laughs> piece of paper and ran off. <laughs> but, uh, oh. you know, interestingly enough, uh, 25 years later, nobody's ever asked what my marks were, ever, not once. Oh. So Of course. And I mean, if someone deserves to cross that stage, it would be with you. I can't imagine myself. There's not there's not many of us that could kind of, I guess, balance what you balance through law school. Yeah. Well, there's people that do more. There's people out there that do a lot more. There always is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, moving towards more of your work in the Senate now um, and kind of you, you mentioned your support system and it brings me to the question of representation in the Senate. And the Senate has been known historically as a place for regional representation as opposed to representation by population in the House of Commons. Um, But it also seems to be evolving to better represent visible minorities, women, and Indigenous peoples. We're not fully there yet, of course, but I was wondering if you could tell me about how you approach your role as a senator in that regard and what helps you determine your priorities. 
Well, the process that happens is um, when the bills come from the House of Commons, we've we already we know what's coming and we have an idea of of what's coming. Uh, generally, what we'll do in my office is we will look at each one of these bills with an Indigenous eye. And for myself, I, I look at it and I say, are Aboriginal and treaty rights going to be affected? I always hope that by the time we get them, somebody would have already scanned that. But there doesn't seem to be a set uh, process in place yet. I'd like to see a process in place that would look at all of the legislation from a, a constitutionally protected Section 35 of Aboriginal and treaty rights to each bill to see if there was Indigenous people that are going to be affected here at all um, and, and their rights. So that's what I do is um, I, I believe that I not only represent Ontario, I've been appointed as an Ontario senator and I represent Ontario, but because I'm Indigenous, I have a calling for Indigenous people throughout the country and in particular Métis people because um, the Métis have traditionally uh, not had a large voice within the Senate. We've had um, Thelma Shalafu and we've had Jerry St. Germain as senators, which uh, came before me. And um, But we need to um, look at the issues that affect Métis as well. We also need to look at the issues that affect uh, the Inuit and First Nations. So it, we have to take a critical eye. So whenever I'm, I'm looking at legislation and uh, sitting on the committees, I'm going to always be looking at it with a legal eye because that's my background. I'm always going to be looking at it with a health eye because what, yeah. what aspects are going to be affecting health, especially Indigenous health, but not, not um, entirely just Indigenous health. I'm looking at health for everyone and legal rights for everyone as well. But uh, because my specialty is in Indigenous rights, I do have a, a very keen eye for that. And when we're picking our committee members, I try to make sure that we have representation from somebody, experts that can speak on the things like this. And so mm. it's working collaboratively as well. We have some really brilliant minds in the Senate and some really fine, fine people. And... Um, I'm in awe of some of the people I'm able to work with because going through my, my own law career, there was people that I cited that I get to sit beside, like Sandra Lovelace <laughs> Nicholas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's incredible for me. She's the matriarch, and, um, and I have a huge uh, love for her because she, of who she is and, and what she does and what she's meant to Indigenous women in Canada. And there's Murray Sinclair. There's uh, there's many people. Lillian Dick. There are so many um, Indigenous senators. That uh, Don Anderson. We have uh, Mary Jane McCallum. We have women. We have men, and we have uh, people that are like re representative of their communities. Don Anderson comes from Inuktitut, and I think it takes her mm. four days, or Tuktoyaktuk, wow. and I think it takes her four days to get to Ottawa. So. Um, we've got some extremely strong, important voices. And from her, here's what we hear is we can't be connected virtually because, because of geographically where we are. So if we think of how isolated they are in the very far north, 
how are we going to ensure that there's a fair voice in the Senate, which there has to be? So these are things that we're, you know, that we're working on, that the Senate has worked very, very hard on since we had the pandemic. And this week we're starting our hybrid sittings. So uh, we'll be able to, as long as um, Dawn up in Taktayaktak can get connected, um, we will. We have to have her her voice here, and and we so have the, hy- the hybrid as well. Yeah, hybrid mm-hmm. sittings means that there will be some senators in the Senate uh, chamber uh, in accordance with public health rules. But how we can only have so many, and the other senators will be in their home offices connected virtually. And um, we did um, like a, a rehearsal this last week and I was able to give a speech from my home office and be broadcast within the Senate chamber floor. And we'll be able to have our, our votes as well. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to vote at home. So that's, that's important. Very important indeed. So it's mm-hmm. a good way, I suppose, in times like this for the Senate to remain inclusive and ensure that Voices like hers are remain heard in this time as well. They have to be. It's critical. Yeah, it's absolutely, yeah, absolutely. critical. Or, or we can't we can't go forward unless everybody's voice can be heard. Of course, yeah. And looking towards, you mentioned how you analyze legislation through an indigenous perspective, um, often bringing to light perhaps gaps that were missed previously that disproportionately affect indigenous peoples. When you are reviewing legislation through this lens, is there something in particular you look for? I know you mentioned whether Canada is respecting their treaty obligations, but are there any frequent gaps that you notice or perhaps things that you wish um, uh, members of parliament or um, anyone else analyzing legislation before it gets to your desk, anything else you wish they were considering? Mm-hmm. A culturally relevant gender-based analysis. That's the first thing that comes to mind. So um, we have... Um, with it, with some legislation or with um, with some legislative reviews, we have a gender-based analysis that is done on the legislation to make sure that there's a a, a gender parity. But um, what's missing is the culturally relevant gender-based analysis. Meaning, for Indigenous women, we have something. Um, we we have the whole concept of what equity is versus equality. So equity means that we're um, we're not starting from the same starting point. So with Indigenous women, we have colonization. We have how things like laws have affected us, such as the Indian Act and, um, and other, other laws that a sterilization act, the two sterilization acts that were passed in Canada, uh, and and what's happened um, as a result of those, and uh, the leftovers and the policies and how policies have developed from law that has not taken into account things like the guardian and ward theories that uh, permeated early law before the Guerin decision came and created a uh, or noted a legally enforceable fiduciary obligation. So um, I, I look at it that way, and that's probably the, the main thing that comes to mind is a culturally relevant gender-based analysis. And uh, and I'll be speaking on that on um, Bill S-209 within the next two weeks. Uh, Mary, uh, okay. Senator McCallum will be um, uh, doing a private member's bill on uh, a, on. Indigenous women 
and I will be doing a supportive speech on it as well. That's exciting. I look forward to hearing that. Mm-hmm. And it, it brings to mind something in law school where we're often told to follow certain courses. There do there are some that have more of a feminist take um, on the law, but we definitely don't have enough. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think hopefully in time will change so that more students and then thereby more lawyers will be able to take that perspective in the future. Mm-hmm. I think that can be really important. But it's not just, it's just not that gender role. It's for, in because when, when it's just that gender role, you're ignoring Indigenous women. Because mm-hmm. if we're Indigenous women, the gender and culture cannot be disentangled. They're one. You can't be, you cannot take women away from culture and culture away from women. So when you're looking at this from a feminist perspective, you're looking at indigenous women as a culturally relevant gender-based analysis. So that's, what's so important about it. And that's something that, that is often left out in the, in feminist um, theory is like indigenous women weren't included here because nobody thought anything about their, their culture and how it's it's indivisible from who they are as women. Yeah. And Trish, Trish Montour writes about that really well. So um, pull up her book, Thunder in My Soul, mm-hmm. and it's, it's fair. She just does a beautiful job on that. Yeah, I agree. That's something that would definitely have to be taken into account as well. It, it's a full intersectional perspective that's needed. Exactly, Jennifer, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you did mention um, the topic of course sterilization, and I know in your very first speech, if I'm not mistaken, in the Senate, you brought to light that issue. Um, and beyond these speeches, how do you ensure? I know there's the committee work, but how do you ensure that Indigenous issues remain at the forefront of the work that you do? Um, do you, no matter what the legislation is, do you take an Indigenous perspective? Is that always what's top of mind? I'm curious as to how you approach. Um, your work in that regard? Well, there's, um, there's, there's two aspects to what, what we do is we have the legislative aspect, which is very, very important. And that's what I do is um, I do look at it from an indigenous viewpoint, but also the work outside of the Senate is um, it's, it's other work that I'm doing to um, bring to light these issues um, I'm working with the um, like Amnesty International. I'm working okay. with Equality Now. I'm working with um, uh, the lawyer that's handling the class action lawsuit. My office has become a clearinghouse for issues with dealing with the forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous mm. women. We're doing a mapping project. We've got a huge world happening out there, on and it's not and the and it sterilization is not the only issue we're dealing with issues such as consent um with indigenous indigenous people there's and people get a hold of me when they've come across or or have been affected by issues that are so appalling which is the last one was a seven-year-old little indigenous girl who doctor did a pelvic exam without consent and forced her legs apart so those are the kind of things that I get calls about and I advocate on her behalf and try to uh, bring the parties together that are 
going to be best able to address something like this. So there's there's a whole other world uh, besides the legislative work that that I'm doing, but also within the legislative work and the committee work is um, I have a motion out on the table here at the Senate to to do phase two of the sterilization study that was begun in the 42nd Parliament at the Human Rights Committee. And in stage two, we, I'm hoping to garner some support for being able to, to continue studying that and also to um, look at the issues of that's coming from the women's voices themselves. So that's an area. The other area that we've been working on in the Human Rights Committee is prison issues. And there's a report that's outstanding right now. And um, um, it, it needs to be tabled. It, it's work that's gone on for over two years with this committee who had visited prisons and we brought in all kinds of really important voices to talk about what life is like in prison and what needs to change. Yeah. And and that that report needs to be tabled too. It hasn't been tabled. So we've had so many things up in the air since mm -hmm. uh, we had the 42nd Parliament and um, and COVID happening. But we're really hoping that these important things get some traction now and we can uh, get get them moving. But there are, I mean, there there's many things that are are we're, all of the senators are balancing many many um, many other issues within the work that they're doing from a legislative viewpoint. So, so there's lots, there's lots going on out there. Lots going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that brings me to my next question and, and more towards current affairs, I suppose as well, that the speech from the throne took place last month in the midst of a global pandemic, as you mentioned. So needless to say, parliament has a lot of competing priorities at the moment. Um, but in this speech, the federal government did promise to develop a distinctions-based Indigenous health legislation and implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples before the end of 2020. And given the work that you do, I was wondering if you could provide some insight into these priorities. And as a senator, um, I suppose, what will you be looking for um, as this legislation makes its way to the Senate? Well, I'm certainly anxious to see it. And I did hear um, Minister Miller talk about that. I don't have any uh, idea what's coming, but I do know that uh, a distinctions-based approach is good and not good. So um, because we need to have a distinctions-based approach to address specific Inuit, Métis, and First Nations issues. However, in the urban setting, and we know that um, Inuit moved from the uh, their com home communities in the north to the city. We know that First Nations move from their reserves back into the city and go back and forth. And Métis are sometimes in the settlements and they're sometimes in the city. So I believe it's over 50% live in the city. And, um, and so a distinctions-based approach will not necessarily, unless there's some way that it can be captured beforehand, um, a distinctions-based approach is going to uh, not be able to address the status-blind issues of the programming that goes on in the city. For instance, we have Minwashin Lodge. So uh, when women, when Indigenous women need help, they go to Minwashin Lodge. Mm -hmm. So 
it's not like, oh, you can't come in here because we only have funding for First Nations. Or, oh, you can't come in here because we only have funding for Métis or we only have funding for Inuit. No, it's come, we'll help you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so these have been the ones that have been left out. And we need to be looking at a distinctions-based legislation that takes into account Aboriginal and treaty rights uh, out of Section 35, looks at that, looks at inherent laws that are inherent in each individual person being Indigenous, whether it's Métis, First Nations, or Inuit, they have their own set of inherent laws within them. And we have a huge component of the the urban setting. So we have uh, we have to take into consideration how is this going to affect the urban population where programs are delivered status blind. So that's the big question I have right now. I'm working mm-hmm. again. I'm working with others and um, on meetings of people that are are looking at the at um, at health legislation and looking at a sixth pillar from the Canada Health Act. I had suggested in the emergency meeting that that ministers Bennett and ministers Miller had not long ago that we have a look at the at the Canada Health Act and is there some mm-hmm. way we can address some of the racist racism issues within the Canada Health Act but I also said it's really really important that it's not another top down approach. Here we go with the federal government saying, mm-hmm. bang, here's your legislation, you make it work, when it's had absolutely no input from the people that are being affected. So I've got some strong suggestions, and um, and I was very glad that they asked me to speak, and um, and I'm and I and I'm hoping that I can continue on and become part of whatever's happening. So so far, we're we're also working be- behind the lines on these issues as well. But that's that's the big takeaway is it has to address urban issues as well as distinction based in the communities. Yeah, that's an incredibly good point and hopefully one that's taken into account. And I'm glad that they're including voices like yours in that decision making process because the last thing we want is in a distinctions based approach that actually causes more issues. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm in I'm actually in the you know, in the planning stages here, but mm-hmm. they know that they're going to hear from me and I get out there and just scream my head off. And yeah, yeah. so I mean, either way, <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll know. And, and we have, we have a good relationship too. So they'll, hopefully they'll include me in some discussions. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from you in regards to that, but um, I don't want to take up, I know you, the Senate's starting back up this week, so I won't take up too much of your time, but okay. I was hoping to finish with one question um, that kind of relates back to students who are listening to this podcast and are curious. Um, I'm imagine that they're interested in pursuing a career in policy or are simply interested um, in Aboriginal law and the work that you do. But before uh, concluding, I was wondering if you could perhaps share some words of wisdom with these students and myself included um, regarding how we can become better advocates in our legal careers, whether the listeners are Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Um, I'm sure that many of us want to work in a career that allows us to contribute to a more equitable Canada. Um, and it'd be wonderful if you had any advice for us. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I look back on my life and what life was like in law school. And I was never one in law school to really pipe up and make a big fuss. Um, But sometimes when I heard stuff that was 
really off the wall. My leg, I would have to start tapping one leg and then the other leg would tap. And then all of a sudden I'd have to stand up and blurt something out that was totally unprepared for, but I had to make that point. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easier for some people to speak and it's easier for some people to listen. And I know some of you are speakers and some of you are listeners and it's okay. You don't have to always be out there and in your face, but mm-hmm. it's good. To, it's good to have a little bit of both. And, uh, and that's the way I coped was I, I didn't have a lot of energy to get up and speak all the time because it takes a lot of energy, but I had energy to listen. And sometimes you learn just as much from listening. And then, and then when it's time to speak, you can speak. But, um, my biggest, the biggest thing that I have to say is listen to your heart, not to what somebody's telling you, but you know, if it's right. And you know if it's wrong. And if it's wrong, then stand up and say something. Take that deep breath and say, that's not right. That's going to hurt somebody. Or that person has been hurt by that. And just do it. Take a deep breath and stand up and say it and hold your head up, even if you're shaking inside. Pretend you're confident and then walk away. (laughs) That's incredible advice. Pretend you're confident and then walk away. I like that a lot. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Senator Boyer, for joining me today. And I'm sure that law students listening will be super grateful that you took the time to share with them some of your incredible experience and tips for, I suppose, moving forward in their careers. So thank you so much. And good luck in the Senate this week. I think things will be pretty exciting. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing uh, many of you uh, possibly as uh, the next generation of senators and people in the commons. So thanks. Thanks so much for this opportunity, Jennifer. I've enjoyed it. Bye for now. Wonderful. Thank you. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.